up in our Bibles uh, to the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, and we are finishing the Magnificat today, Mary's great song of worship and praise. We'll cover verses 51 to 55. As you're turning there, also, if any of you live in the Santa Barbara area, we want to have like a little rotation of vehicles to go pick up Westmont students. Um, we have a couple already, but if you're interested in that, just send us an email. We have some big Christchurch magnet stickers to put on your car, um, so we'd love that. Luke chapter 1, verse 51 through 55. Last week, we saw the first half, and the title was The Songs We Sing, and really, this is just The Songs We Sing, part two. I mean, we're just continuing through her Magnificat, and we're... we're going to be led in worship by a 13 or so year old Jewish girl under the power and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So actually, let me just read the entire text for us, but we'll just cover verse 51 to 55. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble state of his slave." For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is His name, and His mercy is upon generation after generation towards those who fear Him. And our text now, verse 51, He has done a mighty deed with His arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good deeds, with good things, and he has sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. And so one more time, God, we approach you. We ask for your help in understanding your word. Right now, what we are doing is is probably our greatest act of worship today, to open our Bibles and to submit ourselves to you and your word, to listen to you, God, uh, to conform our minds and our hearts and our lives according to your word uh, by the power of the Spirit. So we ask that you would help us see what you have spoken to your people in your word. And above all, would you show us Christ, Christ who is our hope, our salvation, and the one by whom and in whom we can conform our life to your word. Would you do that now and in Christ's name and for his glory, amen. Well, there is one kind of grand lie in the world, and it pervades all of our culture. It's pervaded every culture throughout human history. It pervades entertainment. It it pervades education. It pervades the sciences. That lie, uh, Paul describes in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, he, he speaks of the world and he says this, they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That lie, that, that was the first lie of the, the serpent in the garden, 
to turn from worship to God, the true God, and to turn to some other creation. That is the lie. The lie that God is not worthy of our worship, that some other created person or entity or institution deserves our worship. And so we could hardly overemphasize the significance of what we're all doing right now. To gather every Lord's Day and sing and pray and open our Bibles and remind one another and ourselves of the truth. There is a God in heaven. He is worthy of worship. No one else is worthy of our worship. Some days you may just stumble in here But as you hear your brothers and sisters proclaim worship, they are ministering to you. That's right. This is true. There is one God. He is worthy of my worship. Some days you may feel tempted. I don't really need to show up. I can watch from home. And and what we are doing is robbing our brothers and sisters of the ministry of worship, of singing to one another about the truth. There is one God, and he is worthy of worship. 2,000 years ago, God, this God, uniquely broke into history. He took upon himself human flesh, and and he did so through a a miracle of of a a miraculous conception in the womb of a 13- or 14-year-old little girl. The Virgin Mary had God himself taken on humanity in her womb. And I love this. What did she do as a response? What was her first reaction? Well, she went to gather with some saints and she worshiped. And she was just processing, what does this mean? And she went to her cousin Elizabeth and Elizabeth was filled with the Spirit and and essentially prophesied a song over Mary and confirmed, yes, you have the Son of God in your womb. Mary was then filled with the Holy Spirit, and what did she do? She responded with worship. And so we have here in the Magnificat, that's the first word in the Latin translation, we have here a Spirit-inspired song from Mary, and she is, she's truly a worship leader for us all, I mean, for all history. As she says in verse, what is it, 48 From this time on, all generations will count me blessed. And here we are, right, 2,000 years later, recognizing how God has blessed Mary and and how she can lead us in what is true worship. And so last week, as we saw verses 46 to 50, we saw seven marks of, of true worship. We saw it was personal, right? My soul magnifies the Lord. No one else can worship for you. We saw it was spiritual. My spirit has rejoiced. Worship is not primarily a place that uh, uh, something you do externally. It's not primarily going somewhere. Ultimately, it is done in our spirit. We saw worship was true. She's worshiping the Lord, God, the God of the Bible. We saw it was earnest. Those words magnifies and exalts are emotion-filled words. We saw true worship is habitual. My soul magnifies, present tense, the only present tense verb in this song, meaning worship is done every day constantly as our, we offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. We saw worship is humble, right? How ironic to come puffed up into the presence of God. 
And so she, she spoke of his mercy to her in her humility. And then finally, we saw worship is God-centered. And she gave us three attributes of God. We saw, we heard of his might. The mighty one has done a great thing. We, we, we heard of his holiness. And we heard of his mercy. That balance of the, that fear of God and his power and his, and his might and also his mercy towards us. God's greatness and his goodness. Now, in verse 51, she, she kind of takes a turn. She stops speaking personally. She stops speaking about God's character and his attributes. And what she does, and you can actually see it grammatically, is she lists eight great works of God. She goes on to just declare the great deeds of God. And so what we see here is worship also should be proclaiming the great things God has done, the mighty works of God. And so we're going to walk through those eight works, and we're going to let Mary lead us in worship. I mean, that's what we're going to do. We, we can make some observations, but really what we ought to do right now is hear afresh of the works of the God of the Bible, and we ought to join in with Mary and worship him. Now, as we approach this, I want to make one general observation. There are 50 or 60 Old Testament references in this psalm, at least. I had pages and pages and pages. I was very tempted to list them all because that's the way my personality is, and I'm restraining myself. Um, I'm listing maybe half of those as we go through it. But, but notice this. This is a 12 or 13-year-old girl who is so familiar with the scriptures that the Bible itself is forming her own worship to God. I mean, this is the way worship ought to be done, that we are so familiar with the scriptures, with the words of scripture and also the, the themes of scripture and the wisdom of scripture. And then as we have all of that stored up in us, that is what God brings out of us in worship. And it's just important also to recognize you know, it would be a, actually a fruitful thing to you to do, it may be a little difficult, to get maybe the top 10 popular worship songs right now on the radio, whatever it is, and, and consider, do these songs conform to this pattern of Mary? Are they biblical? Do they proclaim the attributes of God? Do they proclaim the great works of God? Do they speak of God's holiness and his glory and man's sinfulness and need for a savior? Do they speak of the bloody substitutionary death of Jesus? Do they speak of the salvation from the wrath of God? Do they speak of the defeat of Satan and sin and death? Do they speak about holiness in our own life and how we love to walk with God? Do they speak of eternity to come? That is the right standard as we consider worship songs. And, and I just I have to point out, we ought not to say, well, is it unbiblical? Because no one's going to write a, a worship song that says, all hail Satan and, and I don't worship Jesus. That's not going to sell on Christian radio. Our standard has to be higher than, is it unbiblical? And it actually has to be higher than, is it full of Bible words? We need to say, is it biblical in the fullest sense? Because as we will see, Mary's song is not just Bible words, it's full of the wisdom of God. It's full of the values of God, which are absolutely in uh, distinction to the values of this world. Many worship songs today are simply the world's values 
with Bible words. And so we need to say, is, is this song biblical? And then you may think, well, that's kind of critical and harsh, and, you know, should we really critique that person? Let's, let's remember what worship is. We're not here to critique a person. We're here to worship the almighty, holy God of the universe. And we ought not to bring something to him that, that is not faithful to him. This is God's glory that is at stake. And so it's a good thing for us to examine our worship songs. Are they truly biblical in every sense of the way? And this song is. And so let's, let's now look with Mary at these eight deeds, great and mighty deeds of our God. And, and let's just worship our God with her as we do so. So number one, she proclaims in verse 51 this, God has done a mighty deed with his arm. God has done a mighty deed with his arm. That word has done a mighty deed, it's a, it's a Hebrew expression. It literally is to make strength with his arm. And it's, a, it's an expression of the great saving acts of God in the Bible. It's a metaphor. We know God doesn't actually have a body um, that's why God says, don't make an image of me, because he doesn't have a body. Jesus has a body, but God does not have an arm. It's a metaphor. It's an anthropomorphism, if you will. And it's how God speaks of what he is like. And when God speaks of his arm, he's speaking of his ability to save his people, his, his strength to save his people. So how we're gonna do this is I'm just gonna pick one major cross-reference for us for every one of these. So if you will, turn with me to Exodus 6, Exodus chapter 6. Really, the, the great theme of salvation in the Old Testament is the Exodus. What is the premier example of the saving work of God in the Old Testament? It's the Exodus. And time and time again, we see, it's, it's, it's great, we hear of the finger of God, the hand of God, but it climaxes about the arm of God. And remember, God came to Moses in the wilderness and says, you're going to go to Pharaoh. And Moses is like, who am I? And so he gives him some signs and, and then he goes and he tells Pharaoh, Pharaoh, you need to let my people go. And Pharaoh is thinking, who are you? And do you know what? You guys are just lazy, and so they double the, the labor of the Jews. And so it's a, it's a rough beginning. If you look at chapter 5, verse 19, look at the trouble Moses has got himself into. Then the foremen of the sons of Israel saw they were in trouble because they were told, you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. When they left Pharaoh's presence, they confronted Moses and Aaron, standing there to meet them. And they said to them, may Yahweh look upon you and judge. For you have made us a foul smell in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. Then Moses returned to Yahweh and said, and I just want to take a pause. We often look to Moses as like, you know, uh, let's leadership lessons from Moses. But really the leader in this story is God. The savior in this story is God. Moses in this moment is thinking, what are we doing here? Look what he says, verse 22, Moses returned to Yahweh and said, Oh Lord, why have you ever brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done harm to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Moses speaks for us, right? That's how we often come to our God. But look at the response of God, verse 1 in chapter 6. Then Yahweh said to Moses, now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For by a strong hand, he will let them go, and by a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. 
God spoke further to Moses and said, I am Yahweh, and I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name Yahweh I was not known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan in which they sojourned. Furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because of the Egyptians are holding them in slavery, and I have remembered my covenant. In verse 6, here we are. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the hard labors of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their slavery. I also will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments." And we go on to see that arm of the Lord extended in judgment against Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and yet saving his people, bringing his people to himself. And again, we could go, it's actually, it was a very worship-filled experience for me. A great Bible study for you is this, go study the arm of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. Just go read through those passages, those stories, those verses. That's what I did. It was so full. I had a whole page of examples where we could see the arm of the Lord. Um, but I, I just want to, you don't have to turn there, but I want to I wanna just read one prime, kind of like it climaxes in Isaiah 52, and I want you to hear this. Because this is a, a metaphor, a picture of the saving uh, work of God, but, but it's not... It's not complete in the Exodus. There's going to be another great act of salvation in the Bible. And Isaiah prophesies of it in Isaiah 52 and 53. Isaiah 52 says this, Yahweh has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. And then in verse 13, listen to what he says. How is he going to do this? Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. And he goes on to describe this man, the servant of the Lord. And we come to 50, uh, chapter 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? And then in detail, chapter 53 goes on to detail the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. And so as we get to Luke 1, we can flip back to Luke chapter 1. What is Mary referring to? What is in her mind, humanly speaking, remember inspiration is not Mary doesn't become a robot and she has no idea what she's saying. She has a thought in her mind when she says in verse 51, he has done a mighty deed with his arm. What deed is Mary thinking about? Is she thinking about the Exodus? Is she thinking about other acts of salvation? Do you know what she's thinking about? Verse 49, the mighty one has done great things for me. What is she thinking about? What is this great deed God has done with his arm? It is to take on human flesh and to enter into her very womb to be born. What is the great deed of Yahweh? It is the incarnation of Jesus and the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the resurrection and ascension and rule of Jesus. If we want to see the power and the might and the arm of our God most clearly on display, we ought to look to Jesus. That is where we see the power of God. That is that he is the arm 
of God, so to speak. And you know, it's mind-boggling. Again, this is not the wisdom of this world. Because to the world, God becoming a, a cell, a single cell in a woman's uterus, God becoming a, a poor human carpenter for 30 years, God hanging, being tortured to death on a cross, God in human flesh died and buried. What is, is this power? What is this power? And yet we know that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. God's power is not the power of this world. It's a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Greeks. It sounds absurd to the wisdom of this world. Yet Christ, Christ crucified, Christ risen, is the very power of God. That sin would be atoned for. That the wrath of God would be placed upon Christ and not us. That death and Satan and sin would be defeated. And so Mary understood that the great saving act of God is displayed as God took on human flesh and is in her very womb in that moment. That is the mighty deed Mary is thinking about. And I, and I just want to say, by way of application before we move on, God's arm is not shortened. God is still able to do all he desires to do. He's able to save you in your sin if you have yet to turn to Christ. He's able to save your unbelieving family members or those you go to school with or work with or live next to, his arm has not been shortened. The, the almighty God who sustains all things is able to save. Number two, and we'll pick up a little bit here, but that one was a good one. Number two, God has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. Here we have the greatness and the goodness of God. We have the mercy of God, and, and now suddenly, it's like, whoa, Mary, you have to like sing about that in your worship song? Do we have to sing about that in our worship? God is scattering people who are proud, people who, who think, I don't need that forgiveness. I don't need that saving. I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as them. I have all the wisdom that I need. Now, if you will, turn with me to Genesis 11, probably the premier example of God scattering the proud is in this chapter. Let me just read for us a few verses. Genesis 11, verses 1 through 9. Now the whole earth had the same language and the same words. And it happened as they journeyed east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Then they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and they had tar for mortar. And they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city, and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name, lest we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And just pause right there. That's the human heart today. That is, this chapter speaks of the human condition of the desire of those who are in rebellion to God to gather, to consolidate resources, to unite, and to display, look at us. Look what we can do. 
So verse 5, then Yahweh came down, again, this is an anthropomorphic type language here. Then Yahweh came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And Yahweh said, behold, they are one people, and they, ha- and they all have the same language. And this is what they've begun to do. So now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's language. So Yahweh scattered them there from over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there Yahweh confused the language of the whole earth, and from there Yahweh scattered them over the face of the earth. There's no greater folly than taking your stand against God. Pride is a fool's errand. Proverbs 29, 33, a man's lofty pride will bring him low. God doesn't even need to do it. <laughs> your pride will bring you low. But we know God actually personally intervenes as well. God opposes those who are proud in the thoughts of their hearts. Thomas Watson, a great Puritan, said, it is better to meet God with tears in your eyes than weapons in your hands. It is a fool's errand to lift yourself up against God, against his word, against his commandments, as if you know better than God's design for human sexuality or gender or marriage or what a church should be or what evangelism should be or or what does predestination mean. I mean, as if we could puff ourselves up against God and his word. It is a fool's errand. And so Mary worships and sings a warning for us all. Repent of your pride. Humble yourself. If you will not, God himself will oppose you. God will scatter those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. And maybe one comfort for us, I know there are some of us who are in circumstances in life right now where there are proud people opposing us, proud coworkers, uh, proud governments, um, proud family members. Um, And we ought to remember God will oppose them. We don't need to do that work. We can be patient. We can wait on the Lord. We can pray. And God will humble the proud. Psalm 37 was a psalm that the Lord used for me in in some difficult seasons of life. Um, And it says, fret not. Don't don't get worked up about other people's pride. God will take care of it. You be humble. You be faithful. You delight yourself in the Lord. God will do what God will do. And, uh, And I've lived a short life, and I can testify I have seen God do that. And so we can take refuge that God opposes the proud. We don't need to be the, the ones to judge and call out. I mean, we can speak truth for sure, but, but just know this, God is the one who opposes the proud. And what we ought to do is humble ourselves, right? And, and humble our proud thoughts. Because though we may be sons and daughters of God, he loves us and will oppose the pride in our life for our good. And so we ought to humble ourselves so that we don't need to be scattered by him in the in the proud thoughts of our own hearts. Number three, she kind of ties in a similar thought. She says this in uh, verse 52, 
He has brought down rulers from their thrones. And again, this is such a great statement full of Old Testament allusions. The, the Old Testament is the story of God bringing people down from their thrones and appointing those whom he will and tearing them down, his own people and the nations itself. And so I want us to read, if you will, turn with me to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel, it's a little hard to find. It's after Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Daniel chapter 4. All right, Daniel chapter 4. This whole chapter, this whole story is great, but we'll just read, um, we'll read at verse 29. This was Nebuchadnezzar, one of the most powerful kings who's ever been on the face of this earth. He was the king whom God raised up to judge God's people, to bring them into exile. Daniel was an exile, a servant of the king, and... um, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. Daniel told him what it meant. And now in verse 29, we see it come to pass. Verse 29, at the end of 12 months, he, Nebuchadnezzar, was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king answered and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal house by the strength of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is said, the kingdom has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and the place of habitation will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the most high is the powerful ruler over the kingdom of mankind and gives it to whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was accomplished. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of those days, I... Nebuchadnezzar lifted up my eyes toward heaven, and my knowledge returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can strike against his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my knowledge returned to me. My majesty and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My high officials and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my kingdom and extraordinary greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, And honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true, and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. You know, when we think about politics today, I think probably maybe 
too many of us think about it too much. Maybe some of us don't think about it as much as we should. But there's a key truth that the Bible proclaims over politics right now. God is the sovereign one. That is the absolute most true political statement you will ever hear. God is the sovereign one. And he has a king. And he has set his king on his throne in heaven. His name is Jesus. He is the king of kings. As Revelation tells us, he is the ruler of the kings on earth. He's sovereign right now over the United States of America, over North Korea, over Mexico and Canada, over every kingdom. He is their king, whether they know it or not. And I'll just read to you a wonderful warning that a king, David, wrote in Psalm 2, we think. He wrote it. Someone wrote it. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate on a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Isn't that our culture right now? Mocking God and his ways as fetters, proud in what we can produce. But there's someone else who's laughing. Verse 4. He who sits in the heavens laughs. This is worship. You guys worship this way? The Lord mocks them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I surely will give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like a potter's vessel. The kings are accountable to God. Even now, their hearts are like water in his hands. And he directs them wherever he wishes. Sometimes it's, it's to foolishness and to folly. Sometimes it's to wisdom and blessing for their people. But what every ruler ought to know, and truly part of the church's responsibility in culture, is to remind our government of this truth. There is a day of reckoning for the kings of this earth. They will stand before Jesus on his throne and give an account to him for how they ruled their kingdoms. And, and together, we can rest in that truth right now. We can rest that he is sovereign right now. But as Isaiah 9 prophesies of the Messiah, the government will be on his shoulder. And I can guarantee you that there will be a day in history on this earth when every kingdom will bow to Jesus in his sovereign reign. That's a bit of eschatology for you, but it's in the Bible and it's worth studying. Jesus will reign upon this earth, not just spiritually and not just from heaven. He will make every nation bow to him. He will rule them politically with a rod of iron. God is sovereign over the kings and kingdoms of this earth. And what do we do with that thought? We worship. We don't fret when our kingdoms rise and fall. I mean, it's understandable, humanly speaking, to regret the downfall of kingdoms and their history 
That's what the people of God experiences. Their own kingdoms were ruined. If you read Jeremiah, it's, it's just a lamentation against the folly of his people. But we can know that he is the king of kings. He is making all things new, and the day will come when, when truly this is a new heaven and a new earth, and he will reign and rule perfectly forever. And so we can put our hope that God is sovereign over the kings of this world. And remember, Mary is singing this under Roman oppression in Israel. And her hope is still, this is who our God is. And so we ought not to run from politics, but we just need to have biblical politics. God is king. Number four, as we see in Luke chapter one, verse 52, he closes with this brief sentence. She closes with this brief sentence. He has exalted those who were humble. Here she's quoting from, 1 Samuel 2, this is Hannah's song. If you uh, just want to read that, it's a wonderful backdrop to this song. We think it's likely Mary had been meditating on 1 Samuel 2, 1 through 10, the song of Hannah, um, in particular before she sang this song. There's so many allusions to it and the patterns of it. And we see that God lifts those who are humble. Remember Hannah? She couldn't have a child, and uh, at that time, polygamy was normal, and so she had this rival you know, her husband's married to another woman, and she got mocked because she couldn't have any children, and, and yet Hannah humbled herself before God and prayed, and God blessed her with a child. Do you remember Esther? Remember Esther? Just a forgotten nobody girl in Jerusalem and, or in Israel, and yet she was chosen to become the queen. How did that happen? He has exalted those who are humbled. Remember Mordecai, her uncle, he was just a, a normal servant. Suddenly, he, by the end of the story, becomes like the, the prime minister of the king. How did that happen? Well, God did that. The Magnificat is proclaiming the, the reversal of, of worldly values. The Magnificat is saying everything this world values is going to be turned on its head. Those kings, those powerful ones, Rome and Caesar and these wealthy who can take care of themselves, you know what? All of that is going to be removed, and the humble and the needy who trust in their God will be exalted. This, this is a worship song that is filled with the wisdom of the scriptures and not the wisdom of this world. And so we can, uh, even if you want to study later, I would just encourage you, go read the Beatitudes in Luke 6 and Matthew 5 and, and see the values of the kingdom of God that are, that are radically different than what we would, we would uh, say, these are, this is the way uh, to be. Let's move on, number five, in verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has filled the hungry with good things. Our most prominent example there would be the exodus in the wilderness. And you have millions of people there in a desert with no food and no water. And we saw God's ability to provide for them um, let me just read Psalm 81, verses 10 through 16 for us. This is very likely this psalm was in Mary, Mary's head. Psalm 81, verse 10. I am Yahweh your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Open, I love this verse, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. And Israel was not willing to obey me. So I released them over to the stubbornness of their heart that they would walk in their own devices. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. 
I would quickly subdue their enemies, and I would turn my hand against their adversaries. Those who hate Yahweh would cower before him, and their time of punishment would be forever. In this verse, but I would feed you with the finest of wheat, and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. What a wonderful psalm, speaking of God's ability to satisfy, to provide. Just open your mouth, he's saying. He is, you hear his, his, his character, oh, that you would just open your mouth. Come to me. He is ready to provide to those who come to him. And, and food is, is just this biblical metaphor truly for our souls. Our souls are made hungry. And our souls were made to, to feast upon God. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Come to me, and you won't ever be hungry again. To the woman at the well, if you would come to me, trust in me, you would have water like a spring within you. The source is this eternal spring, and it would satisfy you, and you would never be thirsty again. And it's easy for the people of God to to ask the question, well, what about this season of lack that I'm in right now? I'm not full over here. And what Mary and her song teaches us is first to look back. He has filled the hungry with good things. Remember the Exodus. He did that. He has done that. And and remember, remember Christ. He did that. He gave us his son. Romans 8.32, if he has given us his son, will he not surely give us everything else that we need? Look back, remember, he does this. He is the God who meets the needs of his people. Psalm 84, verse 11, we, we've read this psalm before, and this is a, an important psalm for a season of lack. Psalm 84, verse 11 or verse 12, yeah, verse 11, Yahweh God is a sun and shield. Yahweh gives grace and glory. Here it is. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk blamelessly. Well, it sure feels to my soul like I, I'm, I don't have this good thing that I, that I would want. And we just have to trust, number one, if I don't have it, it's not what God has for me right now. He's not withholding a good thing from me. I have what I need in the Lord. And I can bring and petition, and maybe he will give me that thing too. But I have Christ. I have what I need. If, if I'm lacking, I can know that he's not withholding something good for me. He is filling my soul with satisfaction. And then we can bring our desires to him, as Hannah did, as the saints of old did. And we can bring these needs before our God, and we can trust who he is, that he is the God who loves to fill his people's mouths with good things. He delights in satisfying the desires of his people. And so we know God is sufficient for me. He has provided Christ for me. He will provide for me everything that I need. We look back at who our God is. Number six in verse 53, he has sent away the rich empty-handed. He has sent away the rich empty-handed. Now, it's easy here to ask, you know, why is that? And is wealth inherently evil? And we can see from the scriptures, no, wealth is not inherently evil. It's a, it's a tool, it's a neutral tool. But the love of wealth is, is, a, is a root of all kinds of evils. 
wealth is a great and useful tool, but, but there's a, there's, how do I put it? The Bible has particular warnings for the wealthy because the wealth is neutral, our hearts are not neutral. And when you give a powerful tool to a sinful heart, there are temptations that come with it. And so the Bible warns us often, warns the wealthy often, of, of the, the, the temptation to trust in their wealth. Look with me at Luke chapter 12. This is a great way Jesus puts it. Luke chapter 12, you know the parable of the rich fool who was wealthy, and what did he do? He just invested his wealth to make more wealth, and he tore down his barns and his storehouses, and he built more barns and more storehouses. Verse 20 says, uh, God said to him, you fool, this very night your soul is required of you. Now who will own what you have prepared? And then here's the key verse, ready? So is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. That's the phrase, not rich toward God. The danger is in obtaining wealth for ourselves and not being rich toward God. We know there are righteous, wealthy people, but there's over and over, and especially we'll see it in the Gospel of Luke, a particular warning Jesus keeps giving to the wealthy, how hard it is for the wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because our wealth, it meets just about every need that you can imagine. And so what does wealth provide? It's an ability to provide for ourselves. And so the temptation is, I don't need God. I have all that I need. And so it's difficult to be rich toward God when we have all that we need. And again, the Bible goes on to say, no, just tell the wealthy, be rich toward God. Be generous. Don't esteem yourself too high. Church leaders, don't favor those who are wealthy. Re remember to be rich toward God. And again, this whole section here is, Mary just reversing the values of this world when Christ came as he's establishing his kingdom. We see God flipping the, the values of this world on its head. Now we have two more, and, and they're, they're very closely related, and we'll go quickly through them. Number seven, he has given help to Israel, his servant. He has given help to Israel, his servant. Uh, an incredible truth of the Bible is that the almighty God, who has all that he needs, loves to help his people. He loves to condescend and help his people. Let me read this passage that we're familiar with, Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 10. Isaiah 41, verses 8 through 10. But you, Israel, my servant, and all those words are in her her proclamation, but you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, seed of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have strongly taken hold of from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am am your God. I will make you mighty. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God is a helper of his people, of his people Israel. As 
she goes on to say, in remembrance of his mercy. God does not forget his people. God does not forget his mercy. If you read the Old Testament, Israel always forgot their God. But God does not forget his people, and he does not forget his mercy. Again, even in Roman rule, where, where's our king? Where's our Messiah? Where's our kingdom? Mary is reminding us, reminding her people, right now, as the Son of God is in my womb, he has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. 400 years, no prophecies. The kingdom is just declining, and yet he has given help to Israel, his servant. And then verse 8, as she ends in verse 55, sorry, number 8, verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. Begins, he spoke. Because God is a, a covenant God. He makes promises. God binds himself. His very character, his essence, his nature, he binds himself to his people. And he makes promises to the fathers, to Adam, to Noah, to Abraham, to, to Abraham and his seed, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the 12 tribes of Israel. And as we know, when the New Testament tells us, that seed has now included us, the Gentiles. We have been grafted in to these covenant promises. We have received the mercy and promises of God that God brought about through his people, Israel. We are the nations that are blessed in Abraham. God has been faithful to his covenant, his promises, to Abraham and his seed. And I love the way she ends, forever. That is who God is. And so here's, here's our application no matter what is going on in our life, if we are in Christ, we are sustained by the promises of God. We are sustained. It's our food. It's, it is our manna in the wilderness. It's our drink in the wilderness. We are sustained by the promises of God. He remembers his promises. He remembers and keeps his promises forever. And I want us to close with um, this quote by one of my favorite pastors of all time, Martin Luther. This is what he said on the Magnificat. The Magnificat is about the great works of God for three things. You ready for three things? For the strengthening of our faith, comforting all those of low degree, and for terrifying of all the mighty ones of the earth. That's what this worship song is for. We find strength in who God is, in his promises. We find comfort that though right now we may be low and needy and hungry, we may have lack, we find comfort. Remember who our God is. And then finally, it's a terror. It's a terror to those in rebellion, proud in the thoughts of their heart, and to every ruler of this world who has not bowed the knee to Christ. And so as we join with Mary and worship, we're going to have strength. 
We're going to have comfort. And we're going to be this uncomfortable, like, prophetic presence in the world. Telling people there's coming a day, a reckoning, when they will meet their king. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, willingly or unwillingly, that Jesus is Lord. And so also right now with Mary, we can call those who are in rebellion and say, come receive mercy from our God. He is a merciful God. If he was merciful to Israel, to that nation, to those people, surely he will be merciful to you. I mean that. He, these people were sacrificing and eating their children, worshiping idols, and he remembered his mercy to them. Those stories are to remind us of who God is. However lost, whatever rebellion, whatever thoughts are in your mind, God is merciful. He is a forgiving God. He is a covenant-keeping God. As we look at our culture, doing the things that it is doing, we ought to remember God can save them. He is able to save. His arm is not shortened to save. As we look at Israel, truly today in rebellion to their king of kings, to their Messiah, Romans 11 tells us, Right now, they're hardened, actually, for our good as the Gentiles come in, but there's going to be a day when they, too, will have mercy again. God will have mercy on his people. And so together, let's draw near as Mary did, and let's worship the King of Kings together. God, we do thank you for who you are. I thank you for your word, how it strengthens and comforts and frightens you are the God in heaven. You sustain all things. You have created all things. You have covenanted with your people to show them mercy, even in spite of their sin. We have been shown mercy who are in Christ. We too were off, dead in our sin, in rebellion, proud in the thoughts of our heart. Yet God, you were rich in mercy and you saved us. When we were yet your enemies, Christ, you died for us. And your spirit came, regenerated us, gave us hearts that trusted and minds that understood the gospel. And God, you are still saving. You are still at work. You are still raising up those who are humble, humbling those who are proud. You are still ruling this world, this nation, this state. You are the King of Kings. I thank you for our sister, Mary, who went before us, who knew your scriptures so well, who has led us in worship. We thank you, God, for her faith. Uh, truly, she is a blessed woman uh, because she believed the promises of God, and you used her mightily. Um, and would we continue to look to her, God? Would we trust in the God of Mary, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Would you lead us now um, in humility, in repentance, and in faith? Would we worship you now? It's in Christ's name. Amen.